This is a Stimulus Network podcast. My name is Hayley Stevens. I'm a scientific paranormal researcher based in the UK and the host of the Spooktator podcast, which examines the stranger elements of life, society, international culture and the media. In this episode, I'm joined by Blake Smith and Jeb Card, and we're going to be discussing Helia, the series produced by Planet Weird. Blake Smith is a writer, researcher and podcaster with an incurable pun condition. Just ignore that bit and you'll be fine. You'll know him from such shows as Monster Talk and In Research Of, the latter of which he co-hosts with Jeb Card, an archaeologist and maker of poor choices in regards to studying the paranormal. Last year, when I decided to watch Hellier Season 1, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. There are two seasons of Hellier in total, which will take you on a journey through cryptozoology, ufology, the occult, ciphers, the philosophy of synchronicities, psychic abilities, parapsychology, astrology, high strangeness, and much more. Available on Amazon Prime or for free to watch on YouTube, the Hellier investigation spans 15 episodes across two seasons. And although UK listeners may not be familiar with it, it's quite a big deal in the States. Researching the case after watching left me feeling baffled. So I got in touch with Jeb and Blake and began to learn more about the ideas behind the season, which have been brought together by the Hellier cast to try and make sense of their mystery. The problem is that the mystery they're trying to investigate is one of their own making. In this episode of The Spooktator, we're going to attempt to pick apart those ideas and the mystery at the heart of Helia. A good place to start is at the beginning. So without further ado... We're going to be mentioning the idea of synchronicity a lot throughout this episode. So would anyone like to explain this now for listeners who might not know what that is? Oh boy, that's that's a order that's that's fairly tall. Blake... Do you have any <laughs> thoughts? I have a few, but... It, it, let me throw a thing or two out there. The, so the word itself comes from Jungian psychology, this Carl Jung. And it has to do with the... It's a big hit in paranormal circles. He is. And that's, that's there's for a lot of reasons, among which that he wrote about UFOs contemporaneous to the first uh, UFO flap. He uh, His idea is that, that, that you get this idea of what they call meaningful coincidences. So when you see something and then later on in a different context, see the same thing, that it starts to tie together and have a special meaning for you. He's changed the definition over the course of his career, and he's not with us anymore. Uh, but in the context of this show, it's about finding coincidences and then attributing that to have special significance um now there's this medical condition called apophenia well when someone or or just a description of how the human mind works i'm not sure i call it a medical condition 
Well, I was going to say that there's a concept of pathological apophenia, which is really uh, – it can contribute to uh, conspiratorial thinking. And then there's just general apophenia yeah. when you see patterns where there aren't any or maybe you make special significance. You see uh, that that kind of thing in the people who see Jesus in a piece of toast. Um, and, which would uh, the pareidolia, the sort of the – It it does. Subset of apophenia, yeah. whereas – if you were to say, I don't know, make a whiteboard full of lots of numbers and then find the great god Pan in it, uh, that might be more <laughs> uh, numerological apophenia. Which I call crapophenia. Yes. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> I want to put this out right here. We're going to be talking about all of this. I am going to try to be on my charitable best as a cultural <laughs> observer there's a lot of things that are going to happen. If you are not ready for an initiation, I don't know, maybe be careful listening to this. So just putting that out there. No, no. It, this, if you have, have the, only the vaguest interest in the paranormal and the way it overlaps with the magical, um, this is like drinking a smoothie made of uh, like 20 or 30 paranormal concepts. So with a lot uh, of DMT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so Helio begins uh, with Greg and Dana Newkirk receiving an email from a man called David Christie, who claims to have goblins coming out of a cave on his property in Helio, Kentucky. Greg and Dana are a married couple who are ghost hunters, and they run the traveling museum of the paranormal and the occult, I think it's called. Something um, like that, yeah. This isn't the first report of cave-dwelling goblins to come out of Kentucky, is it? No. Blake, you've done a little actually bit of research on this. Yeah, this is so some background research, but you've done experimental. <laughs> I have. But experimental. The, yeah, so the, this comes out of the Kelly Hopkinsville uh goblins case, uh which I, is at 55, I think. August 1955, yes. Yeah. And and that is uh it's a famous case way more than we need to go into here, but the the general idea was that there was a family living in rural Kentucky and one night they were besieged by uh little green men uh little uh pointy point or little goblins points are not really green they're sort of silver and glowy yeah they were glowing and uh uh the skeptical take on that it was it was probably owls but whatever it was it really happened they really saw something they were really scared they went to the cops and uh state police and uh lots of people came to investigate they didn't find anything they left the goblins came back and then when the sun came up, that was over, and nothing else ever happened or did it. I don't know. They seem to imply here there's more goblins in Kentucky. And we might uh, be able to throw this into the show notes, but in, in the 1970s, uh, CUFOS, the Center for Ufological or UFO Studies, uh, founded by J. Allen Hynek, uh, who's very famous for his participation in Blue Book, they did an extensive study of the Kelly case and other ones in 1955 associated with ufologist Leonard Stringfield from the Cincinnati area, which I'm north of and the Newkirks are part of. And my interest in this is partly due to my interest in the Loveland Frog case, uh, which is in sort of the northern uh-huh. edge of, of the Cincinnati area. This is all happening in the same summer. Well, uh, the very first Loveland Frogs actually in March. It's all happening the same year, and it's all tied to Leonard Stringfield. So there is this whole thing then of weird humanoids and goblins. And as I think we're going to talk about, the idea of strange humanoids is not unusual in the Appalachian area of the eastern United States. 
Exactly. And the Loveland Frog, we've actually, uh, Kate, we've discussed that before on the Spootator, um, because these were humanoid creatures that had wands, weren't they? And they, they sort of held the wands up towards people who had seen them driving on the road. In the 1955 case, and there's a couple of versions of this, and we're not going to get deep into this because I haven't looking into this. And again, look at that Kufo's report that we can link to, has all sure. a lot of details. Uh, it does mention frog-faced humanoids that have a sparking wand or something in 1955, and that's taken by Leonard Stringfield, who was at the time a sort of premier flying saucer investigator because the term UFO is only starting to come into common use. Uh, so he would talk hmm. about flying saucers. In the 70s, it becomes more frogman-like. Uh, whereas earlier it's something else. So early on it gets not unlike the Chupacabra in 1995 because it was first talked to UFO investigators. It gets tied to UFOs and then later becomes stranger. You see something similar and wands and strange well, figures with wands are going to show up in the Hellier narrative. This is not unusual though because frogs do metamorphose. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Yep. Now... <laughs> So the case that um, the crew of Hellier investigate happens in, was it 2012, did you say? That's when they get the email and it appears to be in relative real time where we have yeah. uh, an individual, a doctor, David Christie, who yeah. I'm just going, we'll just spoil this because it's in the first <laughs> season. They eventually realize there's a decent chance that this person may not have existed or or maybe they did and they do some research and then later some research, but they're getting emails about strange, small, little gray, as in gray alien looking creatures, uh, sort of assault, not assaulting, but almost like playing tricks or being inquisitive about the, the household in, in Kentucky. And there's a nearby cave and bad things happen to, to Dr. Christie's dog and, they spirit him away there to off. Oh wait, well. no. Yeah, there's photographs of, of footprints and and actually of them. And I will I will just simply put this out here. I noticed this when this came out in 2012. I was I was aware of Planet Weird. I think at that time it was it was maybe who Ford it. I forget they changed the name of it. Um, they did, yeah. And it sounded quite a bit like, and, and I've seen them speak about this. It sounded quite a bit like, um, some stories by people that are very similar that have been, that while they were fiction were very influential on the creation of UFO and paranormal lore, like H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisper in Darkness, for example, about mm -hmm. a, a hermit in, in, in Vermont who sends letters instead of emails to people about strange creatures that leave footprints and are messing with their dog and there's a nearby cave and a hill and they're worried that they're aliens etc 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 yeah this is i i would say in general the the very nature of the stuff that drives this whole d this documentary or whatever you want to call this series i'm not sure what to call this series I don't know. It probably wouldn't serve us well, are you, as an audience, for us to do a you know point by point takedown of the various claims. But it's more interesting to say if if you did a, right. if you do the uh, is it uh, yes. Heim, Heim, I think it's Hyman's imperative that says before you go investigate a thing, make sure it actually happened at all, right? It, yes, it, exactly. And, and Which, you... to be fair, they eventually do. Yeah, but... yeah, but they've already gone to the location at that point. So it's a little <laughs> bit late. They've travelled. They're in a cabin in the place. They've, they're it's doing. All, it, it is. It's still tax write-offable, right? But, but yeah. It's anyway. Point being, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> the point being that uh, we'll do better to talk about the content, I think, and how it relates to the whole field overlap. The larger phenomenon. paranormal cult. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually going to discuss next the fact that um, – so we have this case that's happening in 2012. This guy – well, somebody claiming to be this David Christie sending photographs of goblins and footsteps. Uh, footprints and things like that it is worth noting and they talk about this in this in in the show that it is sent to the old defunct email of when they were baby ghost hunters like in their late teens early 20s and they had moved on and so this is it comes to them from a straight to from a strange place to a strange place we can maybe talk about that but it's weird it also very quickly in the series it starts to shift because at, to begin with you think it's going to be this investigation of these creatures and you know like a cryptozoology investigation perhaps of a, a strange creature and then it shifts very quickly and suddenly it's getting linked to all sorts of other things such as the Flatwoods monster and the Mothman case um, from Point Pleasant. Why is this? Where does this all come from? So uh, very quickly for for the listeners, in case they're not aware, when we say Mothman, we're both talking about uh, a thing that was seen in the late 1960s. But what we're really talking about is paranormal author and and I, I would say philosopher uh, John Keel, John Alva Keel, who wrote a number of books that in the late 60s and early 70s were part of, I would say, the first kind of conscious paranormal or psychical research turn in study of UFOs, where people like Jacques Vallée are noticing, hmm, all these stories of little men coming out of saucers and collecting are just like fairy stories. And and John Keel, instead of saying they are from uh, Zeta Reticuli 2 or outer space and that they are space travelers, starts to point out that they are like creatures of old and like myths of old and there's a lot of sort of magical and occult things. And this is where the notion of a window area emerges. This has become sort of a commonplace notion. If you, if you recognize the words Skinwalker Ranch, which is yeah. now a TV show, or it's going to be, I don't, I'm not sure which, uh, you know the idea of a window area. Uh, this emerges around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which is right on the border with Ohio and, uh, and is near Kentucky. It's not. It's not on the border of Kentucky, but it's close. This starts to get. Uh, I think that there has been the development <laughs> of an Appalachian, Appalachian. I always say Appalachian, and I know that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> sort of. So Haley, you're you're in the UK, and you're yeah. you're England based, right? That's right. Yep. And while there's this whole notion that the British Isles have all these hauntings and whatnot, there are certain areas like Cornwall, like like the quote-unquote Celtic fringe, that in the 19th and 20th century, there is a huge amount of interest in documenting them folklorically because they are considered to be maybe different than England. And there's a lot of sort of ideas of spirits and folklore and fairies. Would would that be an Appalachia kind of has that in the U.S. cultural context. Okay. And I would say that the fact – in fact, if you go watch these – so one of the things about Hellier, this was not on the Discovery Channel. This was not on uh, History. This was not on any any corporate channel. 
they put this out on YouTube and on Amazon Prime for a little bit, but then on YouTube. In other words, they've been doing this independently, which I think is very interesting. We may come back to that. Um, if you go to the YouTube videos, and we can link to these, but you can easily find them yourself, and you look at the comments, so many of the comments here are, I am from this area. This area is weird. This area is where the veil is thin. This is an area where strange things happen, unlike the rest of the country. Yeah. And, and I think that is something that has especially developed since the Mothman prophecies. They re, they made a movie. They adapted the book by John Keel into a fictional film in, I think, 2002, starring Richard Gere and Laura Linney. And, and Blake, you've, you've interviewed the screenwriter for the Mothman Prophecies film, yes? Yes, uh, that's Richard Haddam. And not only have I interviewed him, we've also had drinks together. He's a fun guy. Um, but yeah, he actually got to meet John Keel and he, he, he found the, um, the book, I believe if I remember correctly, like just in a used bookstore and picked it up and read it and was like, Oh, wow, this is great. And it is a great book. It is, it is, yeah. um, I, I've heard, I mean, it's just a really enjoyable read. It, I think I've learned since reading it that it's, it's less of a true and factual accounting of what happened, uh, in the Ohio Valley at that time. And I, uh, his own peers have called it, uh, uh, in cold blood, in cold blood of the paranormal. Well, but I would call it gonzo journalism. Yeah. But so it's light, lightly fictionalized, but then a lot of his life was, I mean, like we talk about him as a paranormal investigator. Uh, some people think of him as a UFO investigator, but really his whole life, he was researching and searching for magic and called himself a demonologist. So Keel's first book, Jadu or Jadu is, is his search in the Orient, as he would have put it maybe at that time, uh, going to Asia to look for the last places where magic might still exist, which we're going to be talking about disenchantment. Uh, Max Weber, the idea that the industrialization and rationalization has wiped magic from the world. But so first off, Keel centering on Point Pleasant, West Virginia, although he ropes in a lot of things from the New York area in 1967, creates what becomes this notion that many things are connected where you have Bigfoot sightings and UFOs and, and weird birds and Mothman and men in black and all of that. So first of all, there's that aspect that he is a philosopher of the paranormal that becomes incredibly influential in the 2000s. But secondly, his book screen adapted by Richard Haddam is turned into a 2002 film that I think is pretty good. It feels like a long and somewhat philosophical episode of the X-Files, but I do recommend it. That kind of kicks off a whole micro community or, or maybe not micro around Point Pleasant and around the Mothman to where now you have, and I have tried to go the last couple of years and just things I've like booked a hotel. I've booked things and I've had to cancel the last couple of years in early September, the Mothman festival. In a town of, I think Point Pleasant's like three to four thousand people, attracts fifteen thousand people for its absolutely huge festival every year. Like this is this is Roswell level or bigger. And when Blake and I have gone to CryptidCon the last few years in the Kentucky area, where you see a lot of these people, including the Newkirks, it is clear that Mothman is a huge deal. And in fact, we literally see that in some of the visual evidence in the film or in the whatever in the series 
it's dotted throughout the whole thing, isn't it? Every episode, there's some kind of iconography relating to Kill, but specifically a lot relating to the Mothman creature. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it is It is all over it. And they mention it. They mention it. No, oh, I met this person there. It has become sort of a regional thing. And I think it has become the, the sort of the high ground of this notion of a an enchanted and haunted Appalachia and especially um, West Virginia. And this has only been exacerbated by pop culture in the last few years with the video game, uh, I think it's Fallout 76, which is an open world video game, which is set after a 1950s nuclear apocalypse, which doesn't resonate at all right now. And <laughs> yeah, and in it, uh, the Mothman, Point Pleasant, the Flatwoods Monster, and other sort of folklore of West Virginia are prominent. And this has attracted a whole bunch of young people to a lot of these ideas. And I think that that is part of the cultural background of Hellier. So you mentioned there that this idea from Kill that um, lots of different kind of sorts of phenomena are interconnected. Is that where the paranormal unified field theory comes from? So I, I, I created the, the acronym PUFFED for Paranormal Unified yeah. Field Theory. I am absolutely not the first person to talk about the idea of unified field theory or unified something. In fact, it's even mentioned in Hellier. So I'm not, I'm not claiming that, but it's a thing I've been working on and I, and I have put some definition out and in between putting classes online and, you know, one of the horsemen riding, I've been a little busy recently as we all have. But it's something I'm working on, and, and I can't get into all of this, but I, I personally, and I've talked about this elsewhere, like this is not the first time I've talked about this, and I also have it in print to some degree, that there has been a movement started by people like John Keel, like Jacques Vallée, at one point, although he now is not a fan of it, Jerome Clark, uh, Lauren Coleman, all these other people that have since kind of moved away from this in some degree, and oh, uh, Stan Gordon. Uh, Western Pennsylvania, uh, 1973 and whatnot, basically pointing out that if you start to talk to people about UFOs, if you don't limit your questions to, oh, well, what did you see in the sky that you thought was an alien? You will also get, oh, also I saw a Bigfoot. Also, I saw an orb. Oh, yeah, I was abducted by aliens, but also my deceased relative was there. And, and they were part of this and the spirit world was part of it. All these things overlap dramatically when you start talking to people and that has only grown. And, and yeah, and, and this might be a good point. Let me, inject, let me inject that this may have always been the case, but the people who are researching UFO stories might have omitted this part of the story that didn't comport. Yeah. So I would so, say they purposely have. I mean, it was actually oh, yeah, discussed yeah, yeah, yeah. for quite a yeah. while in abduction communities that, you know, there was there was lore that if you did religious rites while you thought you were being abducted, it would end, which suggested sort of a demonology. And we know that there are abductionists who did not include that in their books. Right. That's that's it's that filtering that I think is we what we don't know is how many of them left out what. And so by doing so, they give you the what you might think of the nuts and bolts view of UFOs back at the time. But at the same time that that was going on, we had like the uh, the uh, contactees, which were much more of a spiritual kind of view. And so I think, I think what we're seeing here is a, a, a more 
intentional breakdown of those barriers. Maybe the barriers were only artificial in the first place, but Hellier is just blowing them all away by mixing everything yeah, up. No, I, I think they were artificial. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating is this notion of window areas, like a Point Pleasant, like a San Luis Valley, like a Skinwalker Ranch, where mm. you have all of these things together. The thing that seems to join them all is, oh, an investigator goes out there and is willing to listen to Bigfoot UFO, psychical, weird archaeology, ghosts, whatever. And once they're willing to listen to all of that, all of a sudden, all the, the reports flood in. I am personally of the opinion that a window area is a roughly blank number of miles radius around an investigator. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think it's it's quite interesting when these things are reported because it does depend um, on the investigator, which phenomena is anchored to which. So I was at a conference a few months ago where somebody spoke about um, researching Bigfoot and mentioned how orb phenomena is often seen when Bigfoot's around, but then maybe a ghost researcher, someone who's more um, drawn to doing ghost research, would say that orb phenomena is the main phenomena and it attracts other things too. So even then, the way that it's reported by that investigator can also massively influence how it's it's kind of rec recorded and passed on oh absolutely there, there's a fantastic book uh and i'd have to go look up the name of the author it's uh, i think it's matheson i could be wrong about that uh but on alien abduction we can fix that in the show notes uh in in the late 1990s like i think 1998 that pointed out that depending on which of the major alien abduction people like the researchers you talk to the abductions came out differently like if you talk to John Mack, the aliens were all warning about ecological apocalypse and they were from the imaginal realm. But if you yeah. talk to Bud Hopkins, they were close, they were cold clinical medical experimenting cloning aliens. But if you went to and so on, that no, it is, it is very much through a lens. Yeah. I don't really have much to add to that except I kept thinking the whole time that Hellier takes these windows to the max. So throughout the series, series one and two, there are a number of characters, or not characters, people. I think that some of them are real people. We're all characters, Haley. Yeah, in someone's story. But in Helia, there are a number of people who are mentioned a lot. So Terry Wrist is mentioned a lot and Indrid Cold. For people who might not be familiar with them, does anybody want to break down who they are and how they might be connected to this? Blake, do you want to take Indrid Cold? I do. Uh, I want to take him hard. I want to take him often. No. <laughs> this took a turn. It really did. I've been stuck at home too long. Okay, no. Seriously. It's a lockdown. <laughs> so so Indrid Cold's really interesting to me. So I had not read the Mothman Prophecies when I watched the movie. Really? Really. Mothman Prophecies, the book, is the thing that like in my teens sort of like I had been interested in paranormal stuff for a long while. And then I was like, and it was the thing that revived me in a lot of ways, weirdly. I mean, Mothman's covered in so many paranormal and cryptozoological books. I felt like I knew the character or the monster or the, the story. And so when I watched the movie, oh my gosh, yeah. Indrid Cold appears in the film as this dark and mysterious cosmic figure. It's really An ultra-terrestrial. An ultra-terrestrial. Yeah. And I love the way it's presented. It's so well done. I really like it a lot. And then I read the book, and I was like, uh, this doesn't sound like the same thing. 
And that's when I discovered that Indrid Cold fits much more into the sort of contactee world of friendly humanoid aliens who are going to tell us how to save the planet. Yeah, he's a long-haired uh, so, guy from Lanulos, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a, a planet where clothing is optional, uh, and it's like, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I mean, technically, that's the same on Earth. That could be planet Earth. Clothing technically is optional here, too. Technically, but we do have laws about it. I mean, I, the yeah. idea is that they're, they're above all that. So it's a... It's right. A, it feels like a... I, so there's a, a book written by Woody Derenberger, the guy who's at the heart of the that story. And remember and, and who he, there is an XP of in the Mothman Prophecies movie. Yeah, a, exactly. And uh, they talk to his daughter in the Hellier series. So Indrid Cold comes up a lot. And I, I, I get the feeling that the Indrid Cold that they're they're alluding to is more like the one in the movie. But they do talk about the the sort of primary source, which is uh, uh, visitors from Lanulos, uh, and it's the it's this narrative about the Derenberger's contactee experience, and it's a really really interesting story. It feels very much like a 1950s thing. I mean, it's it feels like uh, optimistic so, and yeah. uh, a planet full of hope and and uh, utopia, uh, and, and so the the. The disparity between the Mothman Prophecies movie version and the sort of historical what did Woody Derenberger actually claim to have experienced is really a huge gap. But they're definitely leaning into the spooky version uh, for the series, even though they definitely talk about it as a contactee type thing. So, well, they yeah. do talk about as a contactee that he has family and that he had a house and that he might have actually been a, a, a something, a person. But they're also leaning heavily into, as you said, Indrid Cold, the spooky from the movie, who kind of gets mixed with this whole notion that Keel talks about of the Grinning Man. Yes. Yes. Sort of a proto-Slenderman. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and so in that sense, uh, he knows things he shouldn't be able to know. Uh, he can appear – he apparently can just walk past security and show up in your uh, – house and talk to you what what surprises me is in addition to throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks with inhaler they th this doesn't uh stop even like in this case in, in this version of indrid cold that they present they give you uh the it's real it might still be going on and also they actually show footage of john kill saying that he thinks woody derenberger was a pathological liar so it's like they're they're covering every spectrum of the of how you might interpret this. It's absolutely made up. It's absolutely real. It's paranormal. It's supernatural. It, they they throw it all out there, and they never really they throw it all out there without picking. We a were side. actually sort of joking when we were when we were discussing this that and I, I I don't mean this in a negative sense. I or maybe I do. I don't know that this is almost an anti investigation. Where if, yes. if an investigation is meant to narrow down options until you only have, you know, the what when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, is true. If you're doing that, hellier as it goes, everything becomes increasingly possible. Have you guys uh, ever read Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency? I have not. Yes, absolutely. The not. interconnectedness of all things. Every uh, this is this is like somebody is larping that without the comedy. Yes, I'm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually I wrote I wrote a review of season one on my blog when it first came out, and I actually basically 
the, my main criticism was that it was just a really bad investigation because they didn't actually reach any conclusions. They just created more kind of more mystery by... Which I would almost say is, is almost the purpose. Right, exactly. Yeah. What we thought was a bug is the feature. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you asked about Injured Cold. You also asked about Terry Wrist. Yes. Which, yes, that's what it sounds like, ladies and gentlemen. Though in the documentary, they do say that somebody who claims to have known this Terry says it's it's pronounced right Reist, so it's Terry Reist. It's uh, clutching its straws a little bit, I think. Yeah, I I, I would agree with you. Uh, that's coming from. And I'm holding my copy. It's very thin. The Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots, <laughs> uh, revised <laughs> edition by Alan Greenfield. I mean, yeah, it weighs in at. I think this is literally, and there's clearly been stuff added. It's 92 pages. Okay. And at the end, chapter 12, interview with Terry R. Rist or Reist, but in 1994, it feels very difficult to believe that that is not a pseudonym, uh, where Alan Greenfield, so most of this book, and I have tried to understand it, and I will point out that people like Aaron Gullius have recently said, who are far more contacty and, and occult than I am, maybe sort of, they're like, I am trying to understand it myself. So I feel comfortable saying, what <laughs> is happening? Um, so it, it, the, the, the secret cipher has numerology. It has, it's a lot of numerology. It's a knot of Kabbalah. And, and other aspects of the Western occult tradition and John right. Keel and contactees. But at the end, there is an interview, June 24. Okay. I just realized it's June 24. I literally just realized it's, it's not today is not June 24, but this interview is with Terry Rist on June 24, which is St. John the Baptist day, but it is also the day that Kenneth Arnold saw flying saucers. Ooh, Cue the yeah. X-Files music. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I think that's very appropriate. Oh, yeah, Haley, you have a, a lovely TV theme humming voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and also, John Keel said it was the day of the year most likely that you would see things. Like he statistically broke that down, and it's this, it's this, it's this. Uh, let's see, one uh, about five page or four page interview. With Terry R. Rist, the Law of the Battle of Conquest section presented previously, which is again getting into Thalema and whatnot. Uh, Alistair Crowley. Oh, 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 you mentioned, you mentioned numerology. Uh, could, so my understanding, that's where you take each letter of the alphabet and assign a value to it. So you can like then numerically figure out the value of words and use that for divination purposes or, or other things. Right? If it also involves diagonals and Kabbalah yeah. and and early modern alchemy, sure. But how, who put the alphabet in that order? I don't know. It always seemed weird to me. It's like people who say at a certain time, like midnight's the witching hour or 3 a.m.'s the witching hour. Like, well, what time yeah. zone are you in? How, this is an arbitrary human system. I don't understand why. Anyway, okay, sorry. Gee, that was the skeptic Davey, me. I don't yeah. know. Could it be God? <laughs> that's, an, that's an American. Wow. Okay. You know what I'm talking that, about, Blake, right? I, isn't that like that, that Sunday morning? Claymation. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. It, 
Yeah. Davy yeah. and yeah. Goliath, uh, yes. 1960s and 70s claymation it, with Gumby, yeah. like basically even, or it wasn't evangelical, it was, I think, Methodist. But yeah, yeah. it might have been, it might have been Lutheran. I'm not sure. Actually, I think you may be right. I think you may be right. Yeah. But anyway, this interview with Terry Rist talks about basically it is, is Alan Greenfield going back and forth. And this is textual. It says it is recorded in our most recent encounter. June 24th, 1994, but it's all about UFOs and things under the ground in Brown Mountain, North Carolina, which shows up repeatedly in Hellier, and this Terry Wrist figure. So I'm going to read a section. Oh, hold on. Before you do, I just want, because there's probably people desperately trying to know, yes, it was Lutheran. Okay, you may continue. <laughs> Terry Wrist. And exactly, I gather... As we were expected, by then we were in a kind of cavern, only, I'd say, artificially hollowed out and illuminated by a greenish glow, diffused, not from a single identifiable source. Anyhow, the whole area resembled shavers, we'll come back to that, less exotic <laughs> subterranean story descriptions, and in more recent terms, some of the modern alien-based stories. We were confronted by these small grayish beings, humanoid only in the technical sense. One of our guys said, Darrow, and started shooting. He had an M1 rifle, if I recall one shot and the little gray beam was illuminated in blue and was just gone then there was a sound and i felt my own gun an m16 get unbearably hot as i dropped it turned to run and was confronted by two of these little gray skinned guys with a net whatever had convinced me my rifle was hot had apparently not focused on my pistol a vintage luger and one of the little net holders received the last surprise of its life it kind of exploded and the other one dropped the net and ran up the slope with me suddenly in pursuit when we got behind the lighted area though it was just gone I heard gunfire and explosions behind me and that god awful hum and then I continued pistol in hand looking around wildly to go back the way I came only three of us ever made it back to the surface one of them died a year or so later of leukemia i think it was only about 24 or 25 so maybe there's a connection i think it's there's always like this wow. countdown for how far does jeb go before he turns into alex jones <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that's true that's that's weird but that's the first i've ever heard any of that and that's just insane. that's ridiculous yeah these guys are going on about fighting an antediluvian civilization under the earth with their with their with their with their late nineteen seventies eighties weapons, I, I you say ridiculous, but that's just because you weren't the shit, Haley. You weren't the shit. You don't know. <laughs> if you weren't in the nom, you just don't know. Oh yeah, okay. I'll I'll remember that. I'll uh, reel my criticism back in. I just have this picture of like a butterfly net and this thing running around with like a butterfly net and it's trying to catch a human in this butterfly net and it's it's, it's significantly too short. Sure it's supposed to jump up in the air and yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that image and I think it's also crossing over with your recent Animal Crossing uh, interests. Oh my gosh, yes, this is really weird for listeners. We've been talking outside of the podcast about this episode and recording it whilst we've been rewatching Helia. And I've got the new Animal Crossing game and there have been several parallels in Animal Crossing and researching Helia, including catching things with a net. I, I met um, like an elemental last night and I've been fishing out tin cans from the sea. And tin cans are actually a huge feature in Helia. Let me also add that while reading your post about finding uh, tin cans in Animal Crossing... Listening to an unrelated show from like 2014, 
the people on the show said the words Animal Crossing in a completely unrelated <laughs> context. So, yeah, synchronicity is is where you find it. The better your brain is at finding relations between things and yeah. remembering those things, the better and the more likely you are to fall into synchronicity. That's, a, that's a sync, Blake. That's a sync. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Across both seasons of Hellier, they use like a really weird array of different techniques from tarot card readings to determine the course of their investigation through to something called the Estes method, which is of their own div- their own creation. And it's sort of like a Gansfeld meets the ghost box sort of methodology R- that they've Rocky Mountain hashed- Gansfeld, right? Or is that what we're yeah. going with? Yeah. So. Do we want to and- talk about sort of the, the division that there's kind of two groups meeting in their team, one from one place, one from the other? Yeah. So you've got obviously Greg and Dana, um, and then they meet up with, um, I think it's Carl and Connor. Right. And then they add in Tyler in season two, right? He wasn't in season one. He was okay. briefly Stan. in season one, but he's he's not as prominent as he is in season two. No, exactly. And I think it's the guys that came from, what's the hotel called? The Stanley Hotel. The Stanley. The Stanley. Yeah. So they used to run the ghost events there, didn't they? And they're the ones who devised the Estes method. I think it's, I'm saying it's, that I right. think it's from Estes, Colorado, if I remember correctly. It is. Right. Estes, Estes yeah. Park. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically like a ghost box device which scans through the frequencies and picks up random noises from different broadcasts. And um, But the difference is that you have someone who's uh, blindfolded and they've got noise-cancelling headphones on and the device, the, the skipping through the channel, is being played into their ears and then they are just saying out loud what they hear but not hearing questions that the other people are asking. So, like, someone might say, what's your name? And they wouldn't hear them say that, um, but then maybe on the device it would say, like, Michael or something like that. Do all and of then- you have a ghost box? No, I used no. to have a ghost box, but I got really bad radio signal where I live, so I just threw it away because it just never picked up anything. I had a broke I had a broken radio in my truck, but I replaced it. I <laughs> I bought a I bought a ghost box last year for a, a course on investigating the paranormal that I teach. And it's loud and it gives a lot of information. So I cannot imagine being hooked up to it for forty minutes with sensory deprivation and yet that is what we see on screen. Have you noticed mm-hmm. that if you listen to the ghosts at night, they speak more Spanish? Just interesting. <laughs> I guess that's an American thing. It, it is. It is. We have a lot of uh, AM radio bleed over from uh, Spanish-speaking stations at night. I don't know. Oh, okay. Estamos right. hablando sobre señor George Nori? <laughs> wow. Wow. They use this method throughout the season to kind of get information about what they they think they're investigating and where they should go. And one of the things that comes out of this is this tin can. Does anybody want to elaborate? Consider how you make a show like this. Like like any reality TV show is 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 a basis of you film everything and then you construct your narrative in the editing room, right? So uh, yeah. the emergent narrative in in season 1 of Hellier is that there's a tin can in a cave, and it's significant. Um, I was unable to uh, call it uh, – I don't know what you want to call it. You know, people with the suspension of disbelief, I don't know what the right term is for this. But I was unable to find it within my heart to accept the, that the tin can was important. But I think that was supposed to happen. Well, I, so. I, I, will, I will say this. So 
we've talked about there being two two seasons. There's a season one of five episodes and a season two of ten. And they actually yes. renumber them as so season or episode seven of season two is chapter twelve. So it's it's a little bit of a George Lucas thing. But where the season one I found I'm just gonna say this straight out, I found it maddening because it was very interesting in the beginning, and then it just became this almost meditative something that ended with their encountering spirits in a tunnel. Once it becomes season two, it becomes this very different thing. But the point I'm making here is the tin can is a thing for a while. And then there's another thing. And they follow that. And then there's another thing. And then there's a balloon. And then there's Amy. And then there's Somerset. And then there's... In other words, it's just thing after thing after thing after thing that continues to sustain what's going on. It's like a ma- it's almost like a mass that just swallows up other things through suggestions. So something is suggested to be connected to the case and rather than analyzing it critically they're just like, "Yep, that's another an indication that we're on the right path." And Alan Greenfield actually sort of encourages them when they interview him in the uh season 2, he encourages them to keep following these signs and so they start finding I think they found like two deflated balloons in different places. And then, but one of those places was coordinates that they got from the, this cipher from Terry Wrist, Rice, which they then suggest, they then kind of forget that, but the balloon is still significant. The deflated balloon that they find there or that Tyler finds there is still significant because they then find a balloon elsewhere and they're like, well, this is a sign that we need to just keep following the path that we're going on. I can't quite do Werner Herzog, but... The balloon reflects my own sense of deflation. <laughs> <laughs> the balloon, like Western society. No, I can't. I can't. I... Yeah, no, but but you know what I mean. It's 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 it, I, okay. Look, here's a piece of evidence for you. They found this can at the end of season one. The can in the cave is a significant part of the narrative because it had been yeah. seen earlier in Connor's Estes method imagery. Right, right. Now, seeing a tin can while they went to Hellier and got like a and b or wherever they were cabin yep. and, and, and did this sensory deprivation thing. He's like, there's an image of a tin can. Then they right. go to a tunnel where there may be goblins. But, but season two, season two, where is the can? They left it in the cave. And the reason they <laughs> left it in the cave, they were like, I don't know why we left it in the cave. I know why. It's because the narrative was constructed in the editing booth and the can was not significant to them as much as it seemed to be when they actually filmed it. That's my belief. As a field archaeologist who's done a lot of work in parts of the U- eastern U.S., you find a lot of random shit everywhere. They also left it because this is what you find in friggin' former tunnels and mining places as you find crap yeah right right i know i know obviously in real life it's crap i'm just saying within the context of the story (laughs) why why did they say it was important but leave it behind i'm saying is because the importance of it arose later that's all they needed to have to go back they needed to be able to go back and refine it and then do they did this sort of well, actually, this comes on to the next bit that I want to talk about they do this session where they use a god helmet so um Dana is holding, Dana Newkirk's holding the tin can in her hand. You've got, um, is it Connor? 
doing the Esther's method. So he's got he's got the noise cancelling headphones on. He's blindfolded, can't hear anything that's being said. So, so one of them is the sensory deprived, and the other one's not, but in an altered yeah. state because of electromagnets. But that's the thing. So she's using this god helmet that has been made apparently with like the permission and the help of Michael Persinger. For those who don't know. God Helmet is a device that was created to basically study religious experiences and the effects of stimulation of the temporal lobes. And it, it goes over the head and it uses weak magnetic fields, which are applied to the head to see if, if religious experiences of like euphoria and visions and so on can be stimulated and created. And so they've got this God Helmet, which has been apparently created with the help of or with the permission of Michael Persinger, who did that research, and they use it to try and amplify Dana Newkirk's psychic abilities so that she can kind of, I guess, bring in whatever they're communicating with. And then the entity, the whatever, is communicating through the ghost box, which is being fed into Connor's ears, and he's churning out answers or statements in response to the questions that Dana is asking. And what's really crazy about that is that the God Helmet, there is no evidence that uh, it can amplify psychic ability. And in the actual segment where they're talking about this and about doing it, Dana says that um, when she uses the God Helmet, they only use it for 30 minutes or so. And for ten, up to 10 days afterwards, she feels completely out of sync and so on. And I've got a friend who's a neurologist, and so I contacted him and I was like, hey, if someone was using you know, these weak magnetic fields on their brain, would it make them feel weird up to 10 days or so afterwards? And firstly, he was appalled at the idea that people would be applying electric fields to their own temporal lobes in a non-clinical setting. He was like, yeah, don't, don't do that. <laughs> he also pointed out that transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which is used in a clinical situation, it has some therapeutic benefits. It can be used in the treatment of mental health. There is still research ongoing to its effectiveness, but it is used to treat people. That uses fluctuating electric fields, which are fed through a coil to create a magnetic field, and is used on targeted regions of the brain, depending on which part of the brain they're trying to stimulate and cause a change in. It has some rare side effects, including seizures and fainting, and if people have like a pacemaker, it can screw that up. But the God Helmet uses really weak magnetic fields, which are applied just to the temporal lobes, and the fields in those are one million times weaker than those used in TMS. So if Dana Newkirk is having an adverse side effect of wearing their version of the God Helmet, which isn't like the official one, it's been made, I guess, in line with the blueprints, then either there's something wrong with it, and it's, it could potentially be causing damage, or... I, I mean, I'm a skeptic and maybe I'm just closed-minded, but maybe we're dealing with people who have a tendency to see connections where none exist. I, just throwing it out there. Huh, that's an interesting idea. No, I, I, I would agree that the and, – and I will say that the I've heard Greg and others from the Hell Your Project talk about their protocols and how there are other people that have jury-rigged god helmets that sound a lot stronger and a lot scarier to your, your neurons. Uh, so – there's that. I want to point out two things. So first off, and they do discuss this in the show, Michael Persinger was not attempting to amplify psychic abilities. As you said, Haley, yeah. he was trying to study religious experiences. And I think a lot of paranormalists 
learned about this because he expanded that to alien abduction. And I think that's where a lot of paranormalists learned about it. So they do say in the show, oh, this was not the initial intention, but it got used for that. But I want to say something else. So Pan is a significant part of season two of Hellier. And the primary part of season one is about little goblins under the earth. This all starts to bring to mind Arthur Machen. Arthur Machen was a Welsh author in the late 19th, early 20th century, incredibly important for what gets called weird fiction. He wrote other sorts of things. A number of his stories were about the idea that was actually a a quasi-legitimate notion in folklore and anthropology at the time that fairy lore, stories of fairy people, were actually remembrances of ancient prehistoric races. This is back when anthropologists and anatomists were just beginning to figure out human evolution and archaeology. Mm-hmm. So there was the idea that, oh, well, maybe there were other people in the past and like Neanderthals and whatnot that were and, – and oh, I can't remember – Homo Dawsoni, basically the Piltdown Man, that were – uh, the or Ianthropus uh, Dawsoni, Dawn Man, that were the inspiration for fairy stories. And so Machen wrote a series of fictional tales, but heavily based on those ideas, that there were these ancient people that were still living in caves and that were responsible for fairies, which sounds a lot like some of the more material aspects of Hellier. It also mm. inspires what we mentioned earlier, Lovecraft's The Whisper in Darkness, which is a direct lift from that. But the other story that Machen is very famous for is a story he writes in the early 20th century. I'd have to make sure that's the date, not late 19th, but I'm pretty sure it's early 20th. Either way, the Edwardian period, the great god Pan. And Pan in the early 20th century, in the Edwardian period in the British Empire, sort of stood in like it does in Hellier for nature. So they mix the green man and pan and Kernunos and all these other things, which you do see some of that in the Western occult tradition, but they're mixing a lot. In the story of the great god Pan. Oh, 1894, by the way. 1894, because it was very late 19th century. Thank you. Tell me if this sounds familiar. In the great god Pan, a series of investigators interested in the psychical realm They want to pierce the veil of reality to go to the other world to understand it. So they do a medical and technological procedure on a young woman. There's a lot of cringy things in some of Machen's writing, so just be aware of that. (laughs) Where she is allowed to see the great god Pan, the essence of nature that we cannot see. And they do this experiment on her, and she sees it. And all hell breaks loose and all sorts of, you know, in other words, their, their worlds are expanded and bad things happen. And all of a sudden there's these weird things. And I'm like, I'm watching them strapping people into Estes method and God helmet things in a cave trying to talk to Pan. And I'm like, they were talking to goblins. Now they're yeah. talking to Pan through weird medical experiments using strange. <laughs> this seems awful familiar. That's all I'm saying. It's almost like a coincidence. I, I believe the word you're looking for is a uh, a uh, synchronicity. 
<laughs> oh my god yes <laughs> yeah it's um it it kind of there's points where you wonder if you're being as a a viewer you wonder if you're like being mocked a little bit in in that they're asking you to believe that they're being sincere but it, it's and i think they are i Wait, think they are you saying are. they're mocking about mocking oh just, oh my god i'm just asking oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> my hands on my forehead. Yep, yeah, same. I did exactly the same. <laughs> I actually think this is very sincere in a number of ways. I think there are parts that are part of a larger paranormal media ecology. Mm-hmm. But I, I had some really big, even if they are being sincere, um, which I, I kind of lean towards them being sincere, but there's still something that just isn't quite, you know, it just, jars a little bit but one of my biggest concerns about the whole thing both seasons was just kind of like the lack of ethics involved i mean in season two for example they they were contacted by a woman called amy sort of at the beginning of the season uh by email which very much reflects the whole david christie email about the goblins but this woman is is traceable and she says there are creatures sort of i think taking people underground in somerset in kentucky she says her life is in danger and by the way that's a huge kind of synchronicity there because i live in wiltshire and i live on the wiltshire somerset border mm-hmm Oh, they they name check Somerset, England so many times. Yes. Yeah. Um, But she says that her life is in danger, that she's, you know, doing these investigations into these people underground who are taking people and like torturing them. She hears a woman screaming and then she gets arrested and she's in jail. And later in the series, Greg Newkirk is talking to her on like a a video phone from the, the prison and they have this exchange. And um. Like what she is saying to me, watching as someone who is, you know, a paranormal researcher, it, it's more. In, it becomes increasingly more and more concerning, and she basically ends up telling Greg that um, what she's trying to tell him is that Area Fifty One isn't where we think it is. It's in Somerset County, and then they end the call. And following that, Greg says, and I quote: "She sounds. I don't know." I don't know if I can trust what she's telling me to look into. And it was just gobsmacking to me because my gut reaction to what this woman was saying is that she's unwell. And I don't like to diagnose people. They talk about her as vulnerable. Yeah. And I don't like to diagnose people as mentally ill. It's not my place to do that. But as a paranormal researcher, I have a code of ethics. And if people I talk to start to give me any indication that there might be an underlying mental health issue or a physical health issue or something going on at home, you know, um, my thoughts are not about whether I can trust the information they're giving me. It's about stopping the research so that I don't harm that person or, or do anything that would encourage them to do something dangerous that goes against, you know, their their personal safety. And it really struck me that that didn't even seem to cross their mind when they were talking about what she had said about, you know, Area 51 and so on. And then I think someone mentioned before they visited um, Woodrow Derringer's daughter. And oh, she, yeah. You know, she's in, in, a care in her home, nursing home, yeah. And she's in a wheelchair and it just felt so exploitative. Um, she thinks that Indrid Cold's children visit her for Christmas and Mother's Day and Easter and so on. And they are, they're just 
it's it almost felt like they were there and you know maybe i'm being harsh but it felt like they were kind of vultures just feeding taking what they could from her mm. and then going just leaving um to carry on with their journey with this new breadcrumb in their trail and that that breadcrumb is somebody who is in a vulnerable place I'm, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. No, no. I think you're reading exactly awful. right. The I, I if you I think I'm reminded of uh, the. I found the, that very uncomfortable. The John Ronson book, The Psychopath Test, has a chapter in it called "The Right Sort of Madness," and it's about a woman who is a recruiter for reality TV shows, and how that her job is to go out and find people who are border. They're they're mentally ill, but they're borderline. They could pass, right? They're functional. They're functional. They're getting by. They're just crazy enough to be interesting and entertaining without being literally dangerous to the crew or to the the other people in their lives. And like that guy in the rocket. Oh yes, the guy who yeah. Oh yeah 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 the 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 flat Earth guy yeah I mean although obviously he was a stuntman exploiting you know, the situation but but I'm thinking more about uh, the entire TV series Hoarders which is around people with mental oh, illness. Oh Jesus! I mean it's it, that's what the show is. It's mentally ill people and they come in and do a two day intervention and that's not ethical. Okay, and then doesn't help. I mean, and and so so many of these reality TV shows are based on that model of finding people who you know are delightfully wackadoodle or whatever. Yeah, and Ken has talked. Ken Fader has talked about how they want him as a character because he's got the weird Doc Brown hair. Yeah, and he's got you know he's a character. It's like yeah, he's friggin' professor. Yeah, it it is those things. It's it's. To, I think I doubt those TV shows have an ethics department they have to deal with, right? They they have no, to absolutely. And so I, I think the uh, Newkirks here and uh, Planet Weird have put together a show that's following a model they can find again and again on regular television. Um, and so I I I think it has the same exact ethical problems. I, it's not something I would feel comfortable doing. Haley, yeah. did you have thoughts about the abduction experiment? Yes. Yeah, so. In part of series two, they show footage of uh, one of their friends being hypnotized and led through an abduction experience, an alien abduction experience. And he looks to be physically upset by what he experiences. And, 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 they, and they discuss him like having no concern about aliens and then after hypnotism and doing this, being very concerned and afraid of aliens. Yeah. And they do actually say, though, when discussing it, that it's unethical. Like somebody says that's unethical and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Greenfield throws a lot of shade on them as a high, as a either this is real or you did something terribly unethical. Yeah, that's right. That's him that says that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they seem to kind of accept that, but then shrug it off because I guess in the greatest scheme of things, it it's another breadcrumb for them. So it doesn't really, it matters, but you know, it's a means to an end. And yeah, that's the impression I got. And I, I, I can't remember the chap's name who goes through that experience, but um, I actually interviewed him a long time ago with Greg um, when they did their, oh, their, really? their Bigfoot documentary. They did a Bigfoot documentary about... He's the one yeah. who did their 3D scanning also. Yes. So I interviewed him alongside Greg about the Bigfoot documentary years and years and years and years ago, back when it was Who Fought It, um, before it became Planet Weird and so on. And I, I'm inclined to believe that he... Okay, I don't, I don't believe that hypnotism makes people be abducted or whatever um, by interdimensional beings or, or whatever was really being claimed there. But I think to him it was a real experience and I think he he was probably if he says that he was traumatized or found it traumatic then I believe that I mean I'm inclined to believe that he didn't lie 
hypnotism certainly seems to be able to make you focus on certain interpretations. Yes. I mean, that's that's the, I think what Susan Clancy's book was about. Uh, yeah, there, there's there's definitely a confabulation element, and we have seen where it can in it can really make people think think or have yeah lots of thoughts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know they yeah so they got called out by Alan Greenfield. Yes. I keep wanting to call him Green Man, um, Alan Greenfield. Well, there's a lot of Green Man in this show. Yeah, exactly. It was quite uncomfortable to watch, really. And it then was. they did the same thing again with Connor in in Somerset, and it just felt like, okay, you've been criticised for doing something that was unethical, now you're doing it again. So I guess the the question that kind of ties us all to an end, because we've gone over so many different subjects here and covered quite a lot of ground, and I, it's just so complex. There's a lot um, here. Yeah, but what do you think the cultural impact of Hellier season one and season two and potentially any future seasons, what do you think the cultural impact of this is going to be or what has it already been? Well, so I think there's a I think there's two ways to think about this. I think there's its impact and also looking at it as sort of a a sample of what's already going on. So first off, as they point out, there's a there's a montage, and I think it's episode six or seven. I think it's six of season two of the reviews of season one, and they are within paranormal world actually quite glowing. The the the, the term "breath of fresh air," new approach. These get repeated several times, and I've been banging on about how this sort of the, the paranormal unified field theory approach is has been growing. What others have called supernatural, like Sharon Hill calls supernatural creep. Another, there's a couple of different ways of discussing this, and it's been growing. It's been growing in intensity, and even the most high profile, where like you look at say Tom DeLonge and his TTSA is to the stars, looking at UFOs, also involves poltergeist stuff and ancient alien stuff and all these things. That's all right. been sort yeah. of coalescing. So on the one hand, they got a really good response from this. And they specifically talk in season two about a kind of the, the, the occult people, that the people interested in magical teachings and hermetic teachings and ceremonial magic started talking about the show as a ritual. Like an initiation as well. Yes, an initiation, yeah. a magical initiation. I will also say from the limited experience I've been seeing those sorts of notions, especially with younger people, with a few kind of elders like Tenny and others sort of leading the way, has been growing dramatically within paranormal, the paranormal subculture. I, I think that this has been successful and has had a lot of people interested in it because it's actually fitting the moment that we are in, where you're seeing this huge interest and this melding of... You're seeing the ologies of cryptozoology and ufology and par all going away. Where you're seeing people that are talking about consciousness and talking about non-human entities and talking about time slips and quantum. This all are talking to each other much more than they were even five years ago and certainly much more than they were 15 years ago. And I suspect it's not so much Hellyer's cultural impact – though I do think it's having some, but more, this is a really, really rich example of what I think is going on in a larger sense with notions of 
Let's use the word esoteric to cover all of it. Huge thanks to Blake Smith and Jeb Card for joining me for this episode. Be sure to check out their podcasts, Monster Talk and In Research Of. You can find more information about the Spooktator podcast at spooktator.co.uk, where you will also find episode notes and links to all the things that we have discussed in this show. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, remember, Spooky is in the eye of the beholder. Spooktator theme music is by Jason Shaw. Introduction music by Poddington Bear, used under a Creative Commons license. 